is expecting you. Hello, and welcome to Thoughts from Aunt Wu, the Avatar podcast where we know the future. Today on my panel, I have Corey, Charles, Hello. and bringing back a very special returning guest, we have Alexis. Hello. Everyone say hi to Alexis. We uh, last heard from Alexis, um, I don't even remember, when, what episode were you on? Uh, oh god, this is bad. It was a while back. It was end of book one. Right, well, yeah, but someone thing in book one, so... Now uh, now you're back for something at the end of book two, so that's pretty exciting. Today we will be discussing book two, episode 18, The Earth King. The penultimate, penultimate episode of book two. It's the, it's the last one before the finale. I, I don't know what to call it. It's the last one before the finale. Um, a, a pretty interesting episode, and one that I think we have a few interesting things to discuss. So... Without further ado, let's get into everything. But first, just a quick reminder that you can watch some fabulous content on our YouTube channel, Thoughts from Aunt Wu, uh, which will be linked in the description. Uh, you can check out our new long-form YouTube content, which uh, I am slowly beginning to churn out. So that's going to be exciting, uh, as well as our website. Um, we also have some pretty exciting things coming uh, in Hearthstone. There's uh, the end of the year is coming, so a new expansion is just around the corner, and Corey, Charles, and I will probably uh, talk about that at least a little bit uh, when that comes out. Um, we also have a whole bunch of announcements in the Star Wars universe, so uh, check out some Corey is Wrong About the Prequels content soon. And uh, I've been teasing out some Game of Thrones content for a while. Um, I'm, I am in the process of putting that together. Um, so also uh, keep an eye out for the Crossroads Inn. So all of our, our Thoughts from Abu content is, is churning forward. So... Now, without further ado, let's get into our initial thoughts for this episode. So, Charles, why don't you kick things off with the initial thoughts for Book 2, Episode 18? Um, I like it. It's a good episode. It's, uh... We've brought, have we brought the meme back? Yes. It's been a we, while. It's been a while since we've had a, a, a good it's show. It's a good show. It's a good show. No, um, yeah. they do a lot of things well. Obviously, you've got... I don't really like the recap when they have recaps at the beginning especially like this because but I, I get it and then just like kind of expected um the action sequence is nice obviously stuff where they're trying to persuade persuade um the earth king's interesting but we almost expected that this would be or i feel like it's almost expected that this would be the outcome Mm -hmm. Or that, like, the epi this episode in particular would progress this way. Just almost from, like, a TV trope perspective. But mm -hmm. but that's just, like, a criticism of TV in general, right? Not of, not of this episode of Avatar or anything. So just if looking at the individual scenes and stuff, it's a fine episode. It's not outstanding mm -hmm. or anything to me. Fair enough. Uh, Corey, how about you? I'm going to, like go a step above i thought it was outstanding this episode like the entire action scene in the beginning like was some of the most perfect fight choreography in like avatar especially in the book two um i love this episode and like i remember liking it a lot and re-watching it again and like watching it with the critical eye like this episode is one of my favorite episodes of the book so like i guess i'll just go into more details like throughout the episode and like there's like a lot of individual things i want to talk about but like when you put the pieces together, I think this is definitely one of my favorite Avatar episodes. 
All right. Alexis, how about you? I think I have to continue on this trade of loving the initial action scene because that was flawless and it was very fluid and it, it's sort of what makes Avatar so great at times. However, I have to somewhat disagree that this was a very funny episode, but it, I don't think it wasn't outstanding. And actually, there's a scene that terrifies me to my core because it, uh, it hits a very uh, irrational fear of mine that we'll, I guess we'll talk about at some point when we get to Zuko. Yeah. So I think I'm probably in the middle, maybe even leaning a little bit more towards Charles' side. This episode is a little weird. There's some, like, there is some really great stuff to like, and I mean, I like the segments. The, the, the initial fight scene is, is you know, phenomenal. Um, but there are some kind of weird things in this episode. I think it's um, a little bit um, interesting how they play each character's role in this. You know, you kind of have positive attitude Sokka and, and kind of in a, in a weird place, and then Toph kind of on the, the kind of other extreme. Um, but it's kind of, it does move a little quick for my taste, um, and it definitely feels a little jarring compared to the pace we've been moving at, because if you really look at it, like, City of Lost and Secrets, which I, you know, if you look, you know, I thought was an f- unbelievably phenomenal episode, is, like, very slow-moving, very deliberately paced. Um, the, you know, then you have Tales of Ba Sing Se, which is, you know, obviously a, a kind of weird one-off type thing. You have Appa's Lost Days, we don't really need to spend time harping on that. But, and then you have um, the, what we had with Lake Laogai. If you remember last week, we were kind of talking about the sort of, I talked a little bit about the pacing issues, about how the first half of the episode is like pretty slow, and then they get inside the dungeon and it just like picks up. And it's kind of weird because it's like, this episode is then like, it keeps the exact same pace from from the previous episode, and it, it moves really, really fast. And it, I think that on on some level it does like, not cheapen it, because I, don't, I, I still think it's very good, but it, it does feel a little bit, like, jarring at, like, how quickly, essentially, they're able to dismantle this gigantic conspiracy, which is, you know, you know clearly been in a place for a, a pretty long time, and it's, like, it's pretty quick and pretty, like, pretty um, seamless on their part, and we'll talk about some of the pros and cons of that as we get into the episode, but I do think the pacing was a little bit was a little fast for my taste. That said, I think there is also a lot to really like in this episode. So I think overall it, it, it's kind of a, a mixed bag, but still, you know, very, very good. Um, so to get right into our episode discussion, um, kind of want to start off in kind of a kind of continuation from a discussion that we had at the end of last week. And even though we are thoughts from Woo, we do know the future, we don't all know things 100%. Like, we don't remember every episode perfectly. So something that we did kind of miss or kind of not talk about last week was, I know, Corey, you brought up how you were kind of disappointed with the lack of fanfare at Appa and uh, Aang's reunion, that you kind of wanted, like, more kind of emotion in it to be kind of bigger. And I did. I honestly completely forgot that we actually got that at the start of this episode. And, I, like, it hit me as soon as we, we jumped in. And I was like, oh, my God, like, we need to talk about this right away. So, Corey, like right off the bat, like, do you is this what you were looking for? Do you think this is still not enough? Do you think this is exactly right? Would you prefer this in the previous episode? Like, I'm just curious your sentiments here. No, this was great. Um, again, this is like this is like the first episode where you really feel like the reunited. Like again, like what happened in the last episode felt like just a single plot without everything else in the background. So what bothered me the most about last episode was Appa just flew in, 
saved the day, and Aang acted like, oh, there's Appa again. And, like, this is the episode where you really feel their distance actually matter, and they, they do it through dialogue and, you know, just obviously raw editing, but, like, an emotion. But, like, this, I think, was... This should have been the last episode. Um, last episode, I definitely thought it was lacking. They, they really did make up for it a lot in this episode. So I'm actually going to disagree with you pretty strongly here. I think that it fits way better at the start of this episode. And I will admit freely that I take a much more serialized view of this show than I think you do, Corey. And I think, to be honest, I think a fair number of people do. Like, I really look at this show as a very heavily serialized uh, show. And even though it feels episodic, especially in book one where episodes are, are pretty self-contained, as we've gotten to this point in book two, episodes for me feel like they're beginning to really blend together. And on one hand, you can kind of like, it happened, you know, the, the, the thing you want out of Aang's emotion is right, it is right there. I mean, in terms of like timing, as soon as Appa gets back, we have this kind of thing. So in the overarching story, it fits with what you want. But I actually think that on many levels, it makes a lot more sense at the start of this episode compared to the end of the last episode because going into the kind of episodic nature that you would see, last episode, even though it ends in a relatively better place from where it is, it is still like, Dalai Gaga is still a pretty like dark and, and somewhat like, it, it, I don't think it's trying to be as, as happy and to end on like an incredibly happy note the way the way the this episode begins, I think might not have particularly worked for that episode. I think this episode, though, which is really is about like restarting hope and like showing us that like things are really really good, only to obviously dash it completely as soon as we get to next you know the next two episodes. But like it is about like bringing out that hope, and I actually think it fits more in this episode. But I don't know. I, I mean, like, I, I, the theme of bringing out hope, I think, is separate from the separate arc of just Appa being away. I think Appa, uh, Aang's feelings about being lost from Appa is completely separate from the rest of the story. It was its own contained arc. So I think mm -hmm. it belonged with the rest well, of Well, what, what I mean is I, I agree with that. But to me, the reason it for me it works is that because the missing Appa plot is a multi-episode arc, it just bleeds into this one. Like, the start of this episode is the actual 100% end of the missing Appa plot. So, like, from the missing Appa plot perspective, I don't really care where this scene goes as long as it exists. It just, it's there, it makes sense. But for me, then you break down, should it be at the end of the last episode or should it be at the beginning of this episode? And then, it's for me, that's a question of, does it fit last episode or does it fit this episode? Like, I don't... I just disagree with you whether the fact that the missing Appa plot necessitates it being in the last episode. I, I mean, I think that you can make a real argument that maybe it should have been in the last episode for other tonal reasons, and that's fine, and, like, I can accept that. But I don't, for me, I don't think it's, like, necessary because of the missing Appa plot. And here we go discussing the missing Appa plot again, something we've all kind of collectively said, can we stop doing? Yeah. The Appa's amazing. <laughs> no, we all like Appa. We just don't like the missing Appa plot. You haven't been here. You have, you, you have not listened to the, like, us complaining of, like, God, I don't I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to talk about Appa's lost days. And No, all, all you have to stuff. do is talk about Appa, especially since he's my favorite dog-like dog -like character ever. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. So, so this is officially the end of the missing Appa plot. So I'm going to give you, Alexis, I'm going to give you the floor to just give us your, your Appa everything. Appa is, is your favorite thing in the world. Go ahead. It, it is. Two minutes. I, have fun. 
I guess the only thing is I have to, you know I've insisted that I must be there for the Appa versus Momo moment. I must be on this podcast for this, and because I am such an Appa fan, I need to, I need, we need to discuss whether or not he would actually win against Momo. Yes, but we won't spoiler that discussion, because that, that's going to be a good discussion. <laughs> but yes, that, All right. that's my time. Mm-hmm. So, um, before we get into the big um, fight uh, at the start of this episode, one thing that I think is kind of, like, very interesting and, like, totally hinted at that, and given no time, and obviously they don't go anywhere with it, and it's fine, I'm not, like, they don't, I'm not saying they should, but it is an interesting point that they kind of, like, when Toph is like, the Dai Li brainwashed you, Sokka, and it is kind of interesting to me that, like, we've, now that we've introduced this idea that the Dai Li can you know, brainwash people. And I know, Corey, you don't like it, and I don't want to rehash that again because we've talked about that at length. But, like, it does bring up kind of an interesting little, like, hmm, maybe they shouldn't all trust each other 100% because this is a group that obviously trusts each other completely unequivocally at all times. Well, I think what's interesting is that it's sort of to use a dynamic uh, that's, in general, in television, it's like, even if you want to trust a person 100%, and you, when will it come up? Are, how long are they a quote-unquote sleeper agent for? When can they be reactivated? What would cause them to be reactivated? So I think it's, yeah. at the very least, even, we sort of idea what will happen, but at the very least for now, even if they don't, reha- they, they don't bring it up right away, it, it offers the audience an idea that it could be brought up later. Mm-hmm. All right, so Charles, you were the first to bring it up, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the the opportunity to kind of discuss this this incredible set piece of them breaking into the castle and kind of let you let you give your thoughts on this. It, it's it's pretty it's really really good. Um, I think you mentioned in the notes that it's reminiscent of the siege of the of them breaking the siege of the north, but the blockade. Yeah, but I think. This is, or it feels better to me, I guess, because it's more like, or it feels more linear, first off, but second, because I I think, like, the way they move, each of them moves is, clearly, has clearly demonstrated the culmination of where they, who they are and, you know, how they've changed over the series. It's not mm-hmm. often, up until this point at least, that we see Aang pretty seamlessly flowing between um, the elements he's... Uh, bending? Well, yeah, the elements he's bending. I mean, like, we've seen him... Between different yeah, elements. Yeah, right? I mean, we've seen, like, a lot of the other set pieces are, like, if he's using air, he'll just consistently use air. Or... You know, if it's water, then, like, he doesn't switch all up between them, but this uh, this set piece has a lot of Aang going from earth to air to water, or I guess ice, and, you know, back and forth again, mm-hmm. and that's really, that's really cool. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, the way they structured the defense of the city is awesome. Um, I mean, it's not really effective, but... <laughs> but well... They are fighting the Avatar, the greatest earthbender in the world, a master waterbender, and a guy with a boomerang. So, 
Ah, that you're right. The the boomerang really tips it over the edge. Um, it it, it does. It, it really does. No, I mean, it. Like you're right. Uh, obviously, it probably would be effective against almost every other type of invader. But just like um, just like the blockade team, I, team avatar just kind of runs through it, and that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um. The action's done really well. They mix in a lot of subtle and flashy moves, if that makes sense. Like you've got the, uh, or you've got like the army killer moves where they're doing a lot of area of effect things, but then you've also got a little, some more subtle uses of their bending, mm-hmm. especially when they actually make it into, or I guess when they're in the palace, it tends to be more subtle, or the part where they're running up and um, running up the alley and doing the defense against the people shooting them from the sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh no, it's just great. <laughs> like, Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I completely agree. I, I, I love, like, one, I love how seamless they they fight together. Um, This is kind of like the first time I feel like we've seen the full team avatar all fighting like completely as one. I mean, we've seen bits and pieces of it of it before, but this is just like one massive set piece that we get like all of them fighting, all of them like really giving it them all their all, and it's just it's really great to see. Um, I just love like the the, the surface to air rocks. I just thought it was kind of like a fun little little idea, and it, they all look really cool. Um, and it was really nice, like, for once to actually see, like, an army fighting. Like, we, we see a lot of, like, one-on-one duels, a lot of, like, team versus team, so to speak. But, like, very rarely do we see, like, an actual army, and, like, they're all, they're actually fighting as one. You can tell that this is, like, a well-trained unit, and they know what they're doing. They might lose, but they're at least, like, clearly competent at this. They just happen to fight, like, incredibly powerful fighters who are, you know, you know, as, as such, you know, such a cut above where they are. Um, I the, the Katara move where she where she jumps in with the with the water arms is just so. She just look. It looks so good. The animation is just is utterly flawless on her, and it's like I don't know. Like I guess we haven't had a really great Katara fight in a little while, and I just like it was like God. She has gotten so good. Like it. It was. It was so like nice to like. To see that and to think back to like, you know, where Katara was at the start of this series as like, like how much she's learned and just how incredibly powerful she's become. I don't know. It just, that, that, like, it was just like, I was blown away by that. And obviously, like, I've seen this enough times. It's not like this was something like, oh my God, this was amazing. I've never seen anything like it before. Like, I've seen this scene multiple times and it was like, wow, this is, this is really, really good. You know what it reminds me of? Like, now that I rewatched it in present day 2018. Like, the way they choreographed the fight, and this came out before, which makes this even more miraculous, reminds me of something you would see in, like, an Avengers movie, where you have everyone at the same time in a continuous shot showing off what they can do in, like, a team fight against, like, a like bunch of, like, my, like you know, they're soldiers, like, regular faceless soldiers. This is something I could easily see in an Avenger movie. Mm-hmm. I can see that. I, I Also, yeah, I, the other thing is the scope of this fight, like, for where we were in animation at this point, and, like, I'm not trying to, like you know, go overly critical of other pieces of animation. But, like, when you look at this, the scope of this fight is really amazing. Like, there are multiple characters all being perfectly rendered on screen, 
moving around, all moving with their own styles, their own, you know, obviously their own bending forms themselves. But like the intention and detail in this is so good. I also like have to highlight the the scene where Toph and um and Ang kind of lift up the like the floor to kind of create like that enclosure to block against like an incoming projectile. It was just so cool. I, I, I think I love the way that looked. I think what's most interesting actually about the way they did a lot of earth moves in this battle, which I realize is somewhat different than how they did in the past, was that I actually didn't see that many martial arts moves. It actually looked the most, I guess, Star Wars Force-like. Because um, they did a lot of things where like Toph was just standing and preparing herself, and then and, and then the stairs change. Um, or like it seemed like it was a lot of subtle movement which or movement or or no movement at all which almost suggests a mastery which they were trying to project in this scene i mean i think that it is subtle but i do i do think that it's still there i think you can still see it if you really watch closely that they're still doing things like from a movement perspective to to kind of make this to kind of make the things work but on top of that i also think that it makes some degree of sense when you when you think about what this is compared to um like other fights that we've seen where I feel like when you're in a kind of a more standard kind of one-on-one type duel, the, the kind of flowing, the bigger flowing martial artsy type moves kind of work a lot better because they're very like you're focused on one opponent and it's and in some, not obviously not all, but like a lot of martial arts does feel like the kind of thing that you're kind of focusing on a target. Well, when you're in a much more chaotic type of battle, which is, and in their case, like, they're not even trying to, like, win. They're pure, like, they, their objective is get into the palace. And I didn't even mention that, but other thing is, like, it was also amazing. This was, like, an objective-based fight. We actually got to see them, like, they are trying to do something. It wasn't just, oh, they're fighting. Great. Let's see who survives. But I think that because it was, like, because it's such a more bigger battle, it almost makes sense that their moves are going to be more, they're not going to be as, like, I don't know. The right, I don't know exactly the right word, but almost like the, the like more as practiced and um, like perfect. They're going to be a little bit more sort of reacting to a situation and just do it. But then I don't know. I'm not exactly the martial arts expert here, so yeah, I guess my thing was that it looked less clumsy than it could have. Um, I don't know. I guess it was. I felt like it. The fact that there was a lack of a overall movement. I do agree there was some movement, but the there was a lack of overall movement suggested a mastery and sort of went hand in hand with the cohesiveness of the unit and the fact that they obtained their objective seemingly so easily yeah and like we don't entirely know like if you look at the way that like we've what we've known about bending like we're not we're not even a hundred percent sure how required the actual movement of your body is and how much is that like there to direct you direct your um almost like direct your energy flow like i've always kind of imagined that like the quote-unquote martial arts movements of bending are are almost there as like a way to kind of direct your body to flow like to, to kind of do certain things but it's not like it, it's not required but it's like it's not as it's not as important as like it, 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 does that you guys understand what i'm saying yeah, I mean, I think that was actually the creator's point, if I remember, because that's why each, overall, each style of bending ha- has a different martial arts style associated with it, and then there's individual characters with their own version or their own, like, a completely different style of martial arts that's sort of unique to the type of mm-hmm. bending 
they do or the way that character would do bending. Like Toph's and Toph's bending is actually a prime example of this. I forget what style she does. I don't remember what style anyone does actually. But she well, but she well, Toph is but she's blind. Toph is very unique because she didn't learn from any master or anything. Like she learned directly from Badger Mole. So you can almost say that Toph is like the most original, like purely instinctual type bender. Like she like does a motion and sees if it works, and if it works, then she keeps doing it. Like I don't think Toph is. Like if you compare Toph to something like Boomy, like Boomy is clearly using the like the really standard they based um, they based earth, based earth bending on the like Kungar Kung Fu, which is you know that and it's clear that he's using that very like very much, and it makes sense. He's like a master, as crazy as he is, he still was probably trained in a relatively formal school. But Toph, who was trained, you know, was learned entirely on her own, has a more like kind of unique style and it you know, obviously makes sense. So another thing that I wanted to bring up that I think was really nice to see is I really think that you got a good sense of the difference in power level between the Earth Kingdom soldiers. And these aren't even aren't like like frontline soldiers. These are like your palace guards, so to speak, and then the Dai Li. Because I, I think that there was a pretty a pretty clear difference in their abilities and skill. And I actually think it really helped sell like what the, how this city is the way it is because I also like I almost got the sense that like because there is a war going on and even though Long Fang is like trying to keep control of Ba Sing Se like it, it stands to reason he, that he's at least somewhat cursory paying attention to the war that it would almost make sense that like act the that the soldiers here in Ba Sing Se are not your battle hardened really top-of-the-line troops, that these are kind of your your more, you know, they're, they're, they're there to protect the palace, but they're not fighting because nothing has happened in Ba Sing Se for, you know, 40 years that's, or not 40 years, but, you know, whatever, however long it's been since, I guess it's like six or seven years. Um, but, like, we, it's not like, and in the actual inter, uh, inside of the city, there's nothing, like, no, actually nothing's happened for a really long time. It's like you can tell that these are not, like, the highest-end troops, but the Dai Li is kind of another story. And it, I, I think it was very, like, it, it fits really well. You can see the difference between the two. In terms of power level, where would you put the Dai Li next to Toph? Individual Dai Li members? Yeah. Average. I, I guess they're, 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 they're definitely weaker, but they're... But I'm saying, like, because, the... like, we, we know Toph is right now the most powerful Earthbender in the world. Right now. Like, now. what? Is she ever not... I mean, well, you I see in Korra, there in Korra there's a, a lot of interesting... Well, but from, guess... from the point we meet her until even through Korra, is there a point where she wins? I agree with you. I Fine. Would... She's the most powerful earthbender in the world. I'll, I'll, I'll hold I it. would actually argue that she's not until she masters metal, until she creates metal bending, and that's when she actually ascends. And we don't necessarily know that. Like, we've seen, like, there might be more powerful earthbenders that we just don't meet at this point. Um, in Korra, I would argue that She's actually not. I think Kuvira is definitely better than her, but she's still tough. Yeah. I mean, when Toph is really old, I think I mean, prime, you know, like today's Toph probably could be. But like my, my point to you is like, does this come across to you as like the most elite you can become as a earthbender that's not Toph, the Dai Li? No, I don't think it's so much elite because I think the Dai Li are very, very specific in what they do. Like, you, just because you're not the most powerful fighter, like quote unquote fighter in a, in in the world or something, like you, they have a very—I mean, I can just say like they have a very particular set of skills. Like uh -huh. they are, 
but th it's the truth though like they are there for a very specific function of like being a secret police and keeping peace inside a city like this so they're really good at the kind of stealth type attacks they're really good at throwing you know the the throwing those hands and like you know using that to collapse on people like i don't think that individual daily agents if you were to put them in like earth rumble six if you were to put them in like an earth king uh, like on a, a ring and say fight they would be particularly good at that i actually think they probably would be pretty weak but what makes them good is when they're in their element you know it's at night they're coming down from from a building where they're hiding throwing their you know their their chains that they have like i feel like that's where they're actually at their best so i wouldn't i don't think they're actually like the most amazingly talented earthbenders i think that they're just trained to do what they do as well as anyone. That's fair. Like, to put it in your terms, it's like, is Oliver the most powerful fighter in the Arrowverse? No, but when he is in his exact element, he's really, really good. So, the biggest thing that I want to talk about in this episode honestly, though, is the Earth King himself. So we, we, we meet the Earth King, and, I mean, it's pretty obvious he comes off as, like, very childlike, um, like, clearly, you know, not someone with any life experience because he's not been allowed to leave, you know, leave the palace, and, and, and is, you know, in order for him to not know that they're at war with the Fire Nation, clearly they've, like, completely controlled everything since he was a child. Like, it, that's the only way that this makes sense. Um... And I think that it's really, for me, it's really fascinating looking at this because on one hand, I think that it's clear that Long Fang wanted the Earth King to be relatively easy to manipulate because he needs to be able to like get whatever he needs and, you know, you know, just kind of smooth talking with a couple words and then the Earth King will kind of sign off on whatever Long Fang might need. But at the same time, I think that almost like, for me, it, it feels like it comes back to bite them because the Earth King is so is so naive and so easy to like is so easy to manipulate that it's not that hard for Sokka and and the rest of them to be like oh well you can ride on Appa so he goes out to the wall and he doesn't he ends up not listening to Long Fang almost and a I think partially out of just pure curiosity but b like I think that there's this like it, it does feel to me like this guy is like so almost so easy to manipulate that it comes back to bite Long Fang that he he didn't give him more life skills. It's actually funny uh, when you say the word child, because I realize, thinking about this episode and hearing you guys talk, this is actually, I think, the most childish, one of the most childish parts of the series. I, uh, this, uh, this, this, I think, I think, well, I guess for me as an adult would, would be my issue, like, my main issue for this episode is that it is so childlike, like, everything is so easy and so predictable and yes there are a lot of twists at the end but you can clearly see that this is where avatar was catering towards a childlike audience that shot that the the, the childlike emperor could have been one of the audience members i, like I understand that and i don't think you're wrong but i'm when i read this i was trying to sort of like, suss out, because, on, like, on one hand, it makes, like, no sense, like, the Emperor is, like, this, like, or the, the Earth King is, like, 
He's like a little kid. But then like you think about it and you think through the the annals of this conspiracy that have clearly been going on for a very long time because the war is 100 years old. He doesn't know about it. So they've controlled the flow of information to him since he was born. It makes a fair amount of sense that for someone who literally has never been allowed to leave a palace who has been given, you know, who's been all he's done for his entire life has been fed information by Long Fang and been and specifically information that's trying to say like everything's great. The you know the Bossing Say is a perfect place and everything's amazing and you don't really have to do anything hard. It it almost like it I think that it, it at least on some level they're trying to play into this that like the part of the the way the Earth King is is part of the Dai Li and part of Long Fang's overall strategy which ends up becoming his undoing, at least within this episode, because if he had given the Earth King more, like, hard skills, if he was, like, more, he had more experience in life and kind of knew more, he would be less receptive to just Aang and Sokka and them telling him, like, there's a war going on and you're being manipulated. But I do under I do like understand what you're saying, and that that I think is what I was talking about earlier with the pacing problems. Where at this point, like it does move very fast, where it's like they need to convince the Earth King. They show him one thing, and oh look, the drill! Oh my God, we're, we're with the Fire Nation, everything's good. So I I do understand what your point is, and I don't think you're you're wrong. I'm just like looking at it, trying to like look at this purely from the narrative, and like what is the narrative trying to say about this character and this situation. I just don't know how or else you, you try would... and chime in. Yeah, there you are. Go ahead. I was gonna say I just don't know how else you could get from point A to point B with what they set up. Like I think like they kind of like wrote themselves into a corner where like how long do you think it should take them narratively to convince the Earth King that they're at war? Like there has to be like a fine line. I mean, there could have I, been I... the alternative plot line where they just don't convince him that there's a war going on. And then what would we they know do that the there? invasion just kind of fucks up anyway, right? Like, well, and also the invasion doesn't have the Earth Kingdom King's troops anyway. Yeah, so, so... Uh, you could. You're right. It, it, there, there is a world where you just take this episode out and then have, you know, Guru and Crossroads don't actually require this episode other than the information of Op that was on Appa's horn. Except the only problem with that. The, uh, thinking about that though, the only problem though then is how do you put Azula on the throne? How, how do you, how does Azula get on the throne without Long Fang needing her in order to retain power? So I do think that you probably did need to remove Long Fang from. I think you did. I think you needed to put Long Fang in prison, which does kind of necessitate everything. So now that I'm kind of talking you through, maybe not. I think actually you probably do need to do all of this. Um, I mean. Yeah, but does Azul really need to be in the Earth Kingdom throne? Just needs to. I mean, kind of, yeah. The, because if if Ba Sing Se hasn't fallen, then Book Three is not is a very different place. Because part of the point of Book no, Three no, is but it's I like mean, she doesn't have to be in the throne for the city to fall. Yeah, but how do you have the city fall without? You can just kill the leadership. Line. You don't have to assume control. There's. It's not that hard. Also, Azula no, no, loves control. No, I'm saying, I'm saying narratively. How do you, unless you just want to have like Azula enters the city and then kills them? Like, yeah. I, I'm just narratively. How do you get to the Fire Nation have won the war? Yeah, 
Azula enters the. I don't know. I, I mean, she's. I love the Azula stuff next two episodes. I mean, so I'm, it's, I'm it's very great, resident but to like, say you I could don't also have run that same, the same structure except instead of Azula, you know, uh, negotiating for control of the Earth Kingdom and then betraying Longfang, she could just assassinate Longfang and because none. And the Earth King and just declare herself. Monarch, yeah, because none of yeah, none of fair, them know yeah. that, but right, the whole point of the Kyoshi disc spoilers, I guess, for like thirty minutes in the future, yeah. but no one knows that she's a Kyo- she's disguised as a Kyoshi warrior. It's <laughs> a big plot point later. That's true. So. That's true. That's reasonable. All right, I guess I guess you could. I guess in theory you could, but I'm I don't know. I think I think I'd like to see it. I I think that maybe the argument that could be made is the. It probably would have been nice, although it would have been very cliched, to have something more than just they see the drill, that something to the effect of like him really discovering the extent to which the Daily the Daily conspiracy is, maybe would have been something. But thinking through that, it then becomes like such a cliched scene where it's like they like trick Long Fang into like, you know, brainwashing someone in front of the Earth King and it's he's like, Oh, Look at this! Like I don't know, that seems so played out that I'm not. I don't know. Speaking of that, I feel like maybe this makes the most sense. Speaking of that, does anybody find it weird that Wong Feng wouldn't have just brainwashed um, Kuei? The Earth King. Yeah. I mean, how sober do you need him to be? <laughs> well, Jet was fully sober, right? Here's here's gonna be my argument as to why not. Because I, I, you might be right, but I think you, my argument for why not is that is a massive, massive risk. Because if, for whatever reason, it goes wrong, and we don't necessarily know how well this thing goes, we do know that Jet ends up getting out of it. So, like, there is some room for error here. Yeah, but that's he's a, one out a, of, like, however many Judies and other... But it's... We, it's not like we've seen, and we even see that Judy breaks down a little bit. Like, there are moments where it, it, the facade does come apart. And I think that the problem with that is that with, like, Jet or the Judies, okay, if we have to get rid of a Judy, fine, no big deal. But if it's the Earth King, that becomes kind of a problem. And I, I, I feel like maybe it's just too much of a risk when, like, we could just... We just keep him unaware, and then it's meaningless. But if we brainwash him and that goes awry, well, then now we have a real problem because people are loyal to the Earth King. I mean, I don't know. I, I thought it was, like, two-way silence, if that makes sense. Or if you want to put it, like, the palace is almost like a locks, like a, what's it called? Like a locks room murder or whatever. So even if you fuck mm-hmm. up, you could just kill him and say that he died from disease. Who's going to contradict you? No one can be inside the palace. I mean, that's that's reasonable, but I'm just... But, I, I do think that it's like a, what if you mess it up, but you're not 100% sure that you did, and there are going to be people in the palace, and people talk... I don't know. I'm just, I, I, I just fair. think that maybe yeah. the argument is like, what... And until the Avatar shows up, like... Things go well. And even past that, like, we see that Long... It's not... Even though Longfang gets arrested, it's not like that's the end of it. Like, clearly he has... He still has the Dai Li and then looks for a way to get back into power. So it's like... 
in some way, on some level, you could argue that in the fail safe, you either had the fail safe of brainwash him or your fail safe of just when in doubt, the Dali will then figure out a way to redo all of this. Also, for you know, obviously, he doesn't plan for Azula, but careful question does uh, the king have a son or someone who could take over after him? Because Charles, you're assuming that. So either someone will have to take will, over, or the he has someone that could that 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 Long Fei can uh take can, can keep in check after him. Oh no, I I, I just she does assume, have a daughter, but I don't believe she has been born yet. I mean, my assumption was more that Long Feng would say that the Earth King died. There's no clear successor, and so he would just naturally assume control as. He has to have multiple children. I guess. He will have to have multiple children, though, because we know he has a daughter who assumes, assumes the throne after him, and we know he has a nephew, or great-nephew, because the Earth Queen has a... Earth Queen's nephew, would, who is Prince Wu, would take the throne after him. So we know there are going to be multiple children. I've always read, and this now gets like into Korra pretty far, but I actually do want to talk about this a little bit because it's something I found in Korra that made a lot of sense. I always read the situation in the Earth Kingdom in Korra with the Earth Queen, and then after the Earth Queen, it's you know no one's there to take the throne, and it's it's a nephew that's the heir, as a subtle idea that because of this conspiracy, the I don't I don't know how exactly to describe it, but like. The royal line has been pretty well controlled by the Dai Li because, like, clearly this is not a large royal family if there are no heir, like, the only heir after, um, you know, the queen dies is a, is a nephew. Like, there's, she has no children and her, um, like, she has no siblings who are still alive. She has one, you know, the one sibling's son is all that's left. So I've almost always read that as, like, there was some relative, like, there had to be some pretty legitimate control because in order for that, like, in order for it to make sense, they had to control the Earth King from birth. So if you're going to be doing that, you basically need to have, like, a single, maybe two heirs who are well-controlled and can be taught the, like, party line, if that makes sense. So I've always kind of read it as, like, there is, there's some, there's some stuff going on and it's, it's, like, it's not as clean- like, all this is not particularly clean, if that all makes sense. Yeah. So maybe that could also play into it. Like, maybe he doesn't actually have an heir. And, you know, if you kill the Earth King or something like that, it becomes a real pro- It becomes a secession struggle. Because, like, why would Long Fang be the heir? Like, we know very clearly that, like, he comes, like, we learn later in this season, like, he comes from nothing. He's not of noble birth. And his position outwardly is not actually particularly high profile like he's you know it, he acts as though he's like a minor official like no one knows that he's actually running the show so it wouldn't make any sense if he ended up on the on the throne and then, so it's like i feel like he he almost needs like and if they were to kill and, and on top of that if you ended up killing the earth king like then you now need someone else who is the earth king who is willing to let you be com- the actual person in charge so it's like I think it's almost just like it's easier to just like leave this person you've sculpted from birth. Yeah, what would the council say as well? There's a council. Well, we'll get to we'll get to the council of five because there. That's the one thing I don't think actually makes any sense. Um, but one thing I just want to want to say. Um, well, I guess 
Corey, because you this is this is kind of you know, something you love. Is there anything about the actual like the stuff they show um, the Earth King that you wanna you wanna talk about? Because I don't. For me, it's like it's fine. I don't think there's all that much to say though. No, I mean, like I generally, I generally don't like the Earth King. I never have. Like I get what they're like. Obviously, what they were going for, but like I never was behind the idea of like. I, I'm okay with the Earth King being like ignorant. Um, I'm not okay with the Earth King being childish, like to the point where it's comedic. Like, and I think it's done for like more of like kids show comedic, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. So like, I've accepted it. Obviously, making it to this point, it's just like I, I never really have anything positive to say. Where like, the, everything revolves around just like them getting him into line of being just like a regular ruler. Again, I'm okay with incompetent, and I'm okay with a lot of other things, but childish is where like I really draw the line. Yeah. Um, all right, because I want to now we can kind of get into the actual. So we get to the arrest. Um, I will say I I love, I mean adore the little eye uh, movement, the little look that the two Dali agents give each other right before they last their last long thing. Like I honestly think that that was all that was necessary, and you could have cut the final scene with the Daily in the prison and like left it without dialogue. I think that look for me was enough to tell you, yep, they're still totally loyal. They're going along with this because it's going to like, it's better for them to look the part. But I, I, I really, really like that. Well, like that one bit of animation. Well, I guess you could have had the question like, yes, maybe they're questioning their loyalty, but then they decide not to be loyal. So I guess it, you could take it as a questioning look. No, I didn't at all. I and maybe it's a. I've seen this episode enough times and this series enough times to know, like, to know obviously what's coming. But for me, it was so obvious that it's like, yeah, they're they know what they're doing. They're very like they don't have to say anything. They don't have to discuss it. They don't. It's not like a. They don't look at Long Fang and they're like, oh, what should we do, sir? Like it's, they arrest him immediately, but they give each other that look to tell you eh, they know what's going on. However, with that, I want to get into the, the thing I'm probably the most, like, I'm disappointed with, but, like, thing that I think makes the least sense in this episode, and it's the Council of Five. I've never fully understood the Council of Five and how they fit into this whole conspiracy thing, because, like, they're loyal to the Earth King. We see that at the end, like, they search Long Fang's office, they're, like, clearly involved in this, but, like, where were they getting their orders from? Like, how, I don't I don't understand a world where you can have you know, which is essentially, in this case, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, like, as, you know, as a, a council of war generals. Like, how in the world did they not... Do you think that they knew? I consider the Council of Five to be, like, the Illuminati of the Earth Kingdom. Like, they've been around as long as Bong, uh, Ba Sing Se has been around. So, like, again, like, I think they're, like, the, like the White Lotus of the Earth Kingdom, <laughs> if you want to write them like that. I mean, they're pretty different considering the White Lotus is a secret society and these are five generals. But, like, but like again... I'm they, just saying right off the bat, just first, before we get... Right off the bat, do you think they knew about the conspiracy? Yes. Charles? I think so. 
Alexis? I considered it. I, I did consider it when I saw the episode. I Since I haven't watched it in a while, I actually thought I was going to go the other way. And then I realized they were playing it straight. And I was like, okay. They, they seem to be on the up and up. So with that, do you think that it's a they had an idea but didn't really know to the extent and were sort of they ended up choosing their loyalty as to the ended up choosing loyalty to the Earth King and were like they kind of knew that something was wrong but they didn't know whether it was a conspiracy maybe it was just the Earth King was incompetent or something or do you think that they've always been in on this and this was just like they just kind of played it you know kind of they were playing all this to their advantage because you could make an argument that if the Earth King is staying out of all this and if Longfang is essentially like not not going to be focusing on the war from a Ba Sing Se perspective, essentially the generals have like free reign to do it, like to run this as, as they want, which kind of sounds to me like what you think, Corey. It's like, it's just funny to me how like, I think the Council of Five like has more of the Earth Kingdom's like best interests in heart than obviously the Earth King does. And that goes without saying, by the way. But, like, there's a reason why the Earth Kingdom, the Earth King is allowed to be, like, the figurehead of rule in the Earth King Kingdom. I think the Council of Five is behind everything. You think they're behind everything? Yeah, I really do. I really believe that if it doesn't get approved by them, it doesn't happen. Militarily, you mean? Everything. Everything you see in the Bossing say. So, by that logic, do you think that they're, like, even more, the conspiracy runs even deeper. They are at the top, and Long Fang is essentially just a figurehead on top of it, like below them. Yes, that's interesting. I've never thought it like that. That's how but, I viewed the episode, like straight. And I still think that. So then, do you see the next episode as Long Fang trying to actually seize power from the Council of Five? Like. If I never saw the series and I don't know where it's going to go. No, no, I'm saying, I'm saying right now, like, you know what's going to happen. The next episode, the, the Long Fang ends up, like, arresting the Council of Five Generals and the Earth King. Do you think, then, that all of this is Long Fang, that on some level, really thinking about this to, 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 really, to really throw you for a loop from a Palpatine perspective, do you think that all of this was actually planned, that Long Fang actually planned to get arrested in order to put himself in a position to be able to stage a coup and take out the Council of Five in order to put himself at the very pinnacle of power. The way, the way you word it, I, actually I could definitely see that being the way it could go. That's interesting. I, I don't know if I agree with that, but it's, that's a good thought. I like that. All right. Um, so we get all the letters um, that everyone gets, um, and one I want to talk about, the one I want to focus in on is the Katara uh, and uh, Sokka. They get the, le- or the intelligence report about their father, and one thing that I want to ask you guys, do you feel, is, you know, Katara ends up letting Sokka go to see, the, to see their father and, and, you know, says she'll stay behind to plan the invasion. I'm a little, like, I don't necessarily know if it was all that necessary for one of the kids to stay behind to plan an invasion, but fine, whatever. Let's, like, let's just accept that they that it's the truth. Do you think that this is purely uh, Katara just being, like, I'm going to look out for my, you know, my brother's interest over mine because that's what she always does? 
Or do you think that there's a little hint of what we're going to see in The Awakening where Katara is actually kind of purposely staying away from her father because she's not all that, like, she does hold the resentment that she does um, towards him for leaving. I think they needed Sokka out of the way so he wouldn't go looking for Suki. I mean, you're, I, I understand. I'm, I know why they do it. I understand why they want. They need Katara in the city and Sokka outside the city. But do you think that there is any subtext of that here? Or do you think it's just whatever, they didn't even think about it at all? Hmm. I don't know. I actually don't know. It, it, I don't know. I, I, I think overall this is a child enough episode. I would say they weren't thinking about it. But perhaps. Because even though it feels like a long time, it's only three episodes from now that this happens. Like, we have the finale and then it's Awakening. So we're like, the idea, like them sort of beginning to suss out the relationship that the kids have with Hakoda is like, it is reasonable to think that they're beginning to like, they're trying to play the, like set the seeds for that. I don't know. I, I just, it, it did read to me a little bit interesting that Katara was just like, you know, obviously again, I think that the main drive was this is Katara being who she is, is someone who constantly thinks about others and not herself. So she ends up saying like, okay, I'm going to give this to, to my brother because it's, it's better for him. But I did just catch just a hint of it that it's like, well, maybe it's also like her, like, is not, she's not as excited about seeing her dad as maybe she thinks that she was. So she's like, well, I'll let Sokka do it because I'm not as, I don't know. I don't think she was close to her dad. What do you mean? I, I don't, don't think she was close to her dad growing up. I mean, I don't think we have any evidence of that, but. It's just the way I view it, the way they're writing it. I, you say, like, not as excited as Sokka. I think it's because Sokka was a lot closer to the dad than she was. But we, what I mean, though, is we, we know that she is, has deep-seated resentment to the fact that her father left them. That is made 100% explicit, again, in three episodes. So I don't know if it's a question of her not being as close with her dad as it is, like, she is actually upset with him. Like, she, the, the idea of, like, maybe the idea of seeing him is almost like, but he left. I don't, like, that's that's hard. Like, I, I feel like that, that plays into this. I don't know. Just my musings. Um, I mean, obviously, I have to I have to give a quick shout-out to, like, a pretty pretty awesome little... Uh, I mean, a little, a little frustrating that I couldn't just, you know, admit his feelings because I don't understand why this is difficult for protagonists of animated stories to do, just admit your damn feelings. But it was nice to see, you know, Katara hug him and give him a kiss. And, and Sokka is a great to... cock block. Rooster block. I mean, he is in that's the, true. He is in the comics, too. He is not as much... In the comics, he is, is more so, but in... The biggest one in the in the show is is Zuko because Zuko actually straight up cockblocks Zuko, and or straight uh, Zuko does straight up cockblocks uh, Sokka and keeps him from from getting laid for a few minutes. Well, Zuko belongs with her, so with Katara. Yes. No. Yeah. No, he doesn't. We're not having this argument right Katara. now. Katara. We'll have this argument eventually, but not right now. All um, book three, we're gonna have this argument. 
Yeah, yes, yes. We're gonna have this argument next week. Ne- next week, that stupid cavern scene that it's not romantic on every any level, but everyone wants it to be. So we'll have that argument next week. Um, all right. So that pretty much wraps up the Ang storyline in all of this, and um, allows us to transition over to Zuko and Iroh. But before that, any anything you guys want to say about the Zuko and or about the Ang? The gang storyline, sorry. Um, I guess I th- we're going to wrap this up. Uh, I think the way the episode ends with them divided and then all the twists that happen, it's a nice juxta- ju- juxtaposition against the beginning of the episode where they're a united front and clearly cohesive. It's almost suggesting that mm-hmm. they're better together than they are apart, as cheesy as that is. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Um, I, I, I do like it a lot. I do like that we have, like, this episode is, like, it starts out really upbeat, and we go through it, and it's, like, they, they end up, like, accomplishing the goal they've been trying to do, and they've, they've convinced the Earth King, and everything's great, and then, like, it ends up, everything ends up divided, and, like, all that hope is, like, oh, no, none of it's there. I think it does set us up for the finale really well because of what the finale represents, but we'll, we'll get into, like, the, the, the the nitty-gritty of the ending in a little bit. Because uh, I want to, I want to talk about Zuko and Iroh because I think even though it's it's not there's not very much of it, it's very deep and very interesting. So right off the bat, I want to I want to kind of get your gauge your guys' feelings about how you feel about the concept of Zuko ending up in a legitimate mental condition, which I'm basically going to say is withdrawal because that's what it does seem like to me. Uh, the symptoms that they were going for from. The mental anguish of, as Iroh puts it, doing something that was so um, against his sense of self that he is at war inside his own mind. Are you guys okay with just the the psychosomatic, you know, thing that's going on here? Yes, yeah. I'm actually shocked he hasn't gotten to that point sooner. <laughs> I think I questioned the somatic way like how they chose for it to be shown but yeah psychosomatic symptoms are a real thing oh no i know that they are i'm just i'm just saying like right i just want to get like gauge make sure like we're all on board with like zuko is having a a conflict in his mind and it is causing him to be sick we're all okay with that i don't i don't think he should have got a fever but otherwise yes I mean, I'm sure okay. you could find cases where people with personalities exhibit some more symptoms, just based mm-hmm. off of their, or depending on how differing the personalities are. So yeah, I'm I'm down this one. Okay, so now getting into what all of this represents with the the change that that uh, Zuko is going through, so. Right off the bat, I want to I want to focus in on the scene we see we see a you know a Zuko sitting on the the throne of the of the Fire Nation in the fire and and the two dragons kind of speaking on his shoulder and and obviously on one hand this is meant to be a like a pretty clear foreshadowing of what we're going to see in the in the finale which is Zuko and Azula kind of fighting for the for Zuko's um, allegiance and and for his um, ideology ideology he's going to espouse. But I also, I just stylistically, I really love how this this works, um, and and the the way they set this whole thing up. I mean, rather than that, I love the obviously I love the the Fire Nation 
you know, war room with the, the, the fire and everything. And But the way the dragon set up, I just, I really like how they, they do all of that with, with every, like, the animation, the way Zuko is framed, um, putting in the voices the way they do. I, I, I think this scene's really, really powerful. Um, I think it's terrifying. So then, you think it's terrifying? Well, I think the ending of it, as I, I guess I mentioned at the beginning, uh, sort of the way it ends is that oh, he's like he gets consumed, like he gets consumed by like an infinite, an infinite blackness of space, or the lack there, or more, I guess more so, the lack thereof, is very terrifying. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is that the thing that terrifies you, or is the waking up with the Aang tattoo <laughs> the true terrifying one for you? I won't. I, realistically, probably the tattoo, uh, rationally, the lack, the, be surrounded by the lack of space. Uh-huh. Oh, so it's the, the lack of space is what got you, gave you the chills? Yes. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Um, so what do you guys think about the the Zuko's uh, dream of, of, you know, waking up with the with Aang's uh, markings. It's symbolic. I mean, yes, I, I know that, but, like, symbolic of what? And it's symbolic you feel of, about that? It's symbolic of his obsession with Aang since episode one. Okay. Do you agree? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I, don't know, know. I thought it's simple. I think you're looking like I'm not saying you're looking too much into it. I think it's clear to the viewer that it just symbolizes his obsession. It, it just I don't know. It, maybe it's weird. It's weird because I feel like I, I really like what this is and what it represents. And I want to like I want to explain why. But I almost feel like it's just I, it's going to go with the meme. It's a good show. Like this is just a good scene. Everything about this is good. I'm like, I don't know. This is not really much to say. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I, I think Avatar is brilliant, but this is like pretty simple right here. I don't think this was any more brilliant than like any other normal storytelling aspect. No, I mean, I don't. I don't think it's like for me. It's not that it's brilliant because it's like like super deep or like there's a lot of hidden meanings going on. Like I just think that like getting to see the anguish of Zuko as he decides who he is is really good. Like I just think from a character perspective and Zuko's like Zuko's character arc is such a great part of the show and this is a pretty major turning point in that. So it's great. Like I don't know. Oh yeah, Avatar's a great show. It is. Memes. Okay, but <laughs> the memes. If if you want to expound Mark, can you, I mean, please go ahead because yeah, I wanted yeah. to ask what you guys think if if the that dream sequence is a manifestation of Zuko's obsession with Aang, then what does it say that... Uh, what does his reaction say about his psyche at his time of awakening? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I think that it... to For me, it comes down to the fact that... I, I think that, yes, it's a manifestation of his, of his obsession with Aang, but I think that it, it does go a little deeper than that. But I also think that it's like... Zuko, like, because this is about Zuko at, like, asking himself the big questions, like, deciding who he is, that for, for I think, on some level, that that, that, that is a, is Zuko, like, waking up and being, like, not just is he waking up as Aang, but, like, waking up and, like, he's not a member of the Fire Nation anymore. Like, he has a shaved head, he has airbender tattoos, and he's, like, realizing, like, maybe I'm not, 
you know, the maybe I'm not I'm not the prince of the Fire Nation anymore. I'm not everything I believed I I I am. And like Zuko has like such a strong concept of identity. And if we remember like the last like big like Zuko character study, so to speak, back in Zuko alone, which was you know all about Zuko like accepting his identity, and the the culmination is Zuko like you know raising his swords and saying like my name is Zuko, I am you know daughter uh, son of Ursa and Fire Lord Ozai, Prince of the Fire Nation, heir to the throne. Like that is Zuko accepting that's his identity. His identity is Prince of the Fire Nation. He is everything about that that comes with that. And I think that this is Zuko realizing because. When you look at what he did, like, not only did he, freeing the Avatar's bison, lose an opportunity for him to, um, for him to capture Ant, but on top of that, he did just help the enemy, and yes, we've seen him, like, do that once before with the Blue Spirit, but, which was actually tied to this, he was in the Blue Spirit's costume when, when he does this, that it, like, it, I think that it also represents Zuko's, um, like, Zuko realizing, like, what side is he on in all of this? Which is such a big part of where Zuko's going to go throughout the next, like, 12 episodes. Um, no. Well, do you guys... Well, 15, 15 episodes. Do you guys think that he actually... Want, I don't know, I guess I was thinking, like, do you want to be Egg Zuko? Is this what you want? Maybe. I mean, to Zuko, Aang's life's got to seem pretty good. Like, he doesn't have the... Like, even though we know Aang's problems himself, but, like, he doesn't have the burdens of Zuko's destiny... That like I feel like Zuko doesn't looks at Aang. I mean, we, we hell we even saw it back in um, back in the Siege of the North when he's he's in that cave and it's like you know you're like my sister like everything must come easy to you. It's uh, you know she was you know and and I feel like he he is like jealous and like he wishes he could just be like he could be Aang and like have like the power of the Avatar and just be able to do everything he can. Well, I guess is it that he just wants everything as easy as Aang, or does he want to be? I guess on the moral spectrum of Avatar, good like Aang. But here's the thing: I don't, I don't think Zuko ever thinks of himself as anything but good. Like I, I, I genuinely believe that Zuko views himself as a, as, as on the the quote unquote moral righteous side in that he believes the Fire Nation is in the right in this war. So capturing Aang is not like evil. It's just like something that he something that he feels he needs to do for his country. Like I I've, I've always viewed that Zuko is not a bad guy in that he's like actually evil and wants to to hurt. Like I look at Azula as that, obviously. But like I feel like Zuko is is a lot more of like I feel like he's always been kind of a good like a good person at heart. I mean, I think he is. I agree with that. I guess I was wondering if he views Aang as, at this point, if, if he views Aang as sort of like this moral compass that he wants to become. I don't think so. I, I think it's more that he want that, that he looks at Aang as, I mean, one, he looks at Aang as sort of his hope for capturing him and, and, and being able to return home. But also that I think that he feels that if he, if he had Aang's natural ability he could, he would be able to succeed in ways that other people can't. And it's the same thing with, like, how he's jealous of Azula. Because I think he looks at Azula, not that she's, like, a harder worker than him or that he, she, she perseveres more, but that she just has more natural, she's a more naturally gifted firebender and that 
makes it so that things are easy for her. Perhaps, but I guess I was just thinking that maybe it goes against what this episode was trying to do with Zuko's mental state and anguish. I mean, that's fair, but I don't know. I, I just, I look at it as, like, I feel like it's, it's, a, it's Zuko, like, it's a combination of a couple things, but I think, for me, it's, I've always read it the most as Zuko, like, realizing his identity as clearly a firebender, as a fire nation, the fire nation prince is eroding, and that's no longer what he sees himself as. And even though he's going to end up staying on the side of the fire nation in this next thing, we see that that choice causes so much, so much more mental strife with him in within the sort of beginning of book three, that it's almost like this is at, like, this is Zuko's like identity beginning to really crumble. Do you look at that, Corey, we turned this into a whole thing. <laughs> You're welcome. Would you put any significance in the fact that once he sees his, or Aang in the mirror reflection, he's immediately spurred to wake up? Shocked. I mean, in that, um, I mean, uh, given that you, we've just mentioned that it's, it's symbolic of his, um, of him starting to change his concept of self, it makes sense. But, I mean, in terms of if you looked at end of anywhere in book one, Zuko. That guy would have tried to reach into the mirror <laughs> and fucking and get Aang out, or I guess I, like almost to a self-destructive degree, he would have done anything to achieve that result. I think that the operative word in the sentence they used before was starting. That this is that this is not the culmination. This is not Zuko fully coming to grips with it. It's just Zuko beginning to change. Um, I also think you have to, and this is this is kind of hard to tell, but you do have to wonder, when Zuko sees their reflection in the mirror, do you think that he sees Aang, or do you think he, you, he sees himself with the tattoos? Oh, I guess that's fair. You're right. Probably. And it's hard to say, because, because of the fact that Aang is the only person that we see alive in this story with the tattoos and clearly this is part of the, the directorial choice that when you see that you, you are going to associate it with Aang and they're going to sort of associate it as like Zuko's essentially has Aang's face on but if you do look at it it is still technically Zuko's face and I think that you can sort of see that I don't I don't necessarily know if Zuko was immediately seeing it as I look like Aang so much as I look like an airbender and then as he thinks about it Realizing, okay, you know, obviously he looks like Yang. But I also could see it your way as well with, like, a younger Zuko just, like, trying to grab at that face and get Aang and then realizing, wait, that's a mirror, it's me. I think it's him touching the his scar after that sort of maybe clarifies a little bit that... I think he realized it was him. He, but he, I guess he wanted to make sure the scar was still there. That his connection to who he was was still there. Yeah, the scar part of it does add something to it as well. I think. All right. All right. So to move into the the end of this episode, 
One one small dialogue detail I just wanted to mention because we've kind of talked about this at, all, at length in the past, but just another example. I do think it's interesting that they refer to the Dai Li as allies and not subjects. We obviously know the you know the independent nature of um, of Kyoshi specifically, uh, but it just like I, I thought it was a nice little touch there that like even though they are members of the Earth Kingdom, they're not actually subjects of the Earth King. Um, I just like that from a continuity perspective, um, but. God damn, is Azula. That that music, everything about it, just like, oh no, Azula's coming. What are we going to do? Call her ugly. What? Call her ugly, I don't know. I, that that might work later on, but I don't think it's going to work right now because she can just be like, I'm not ugly, I'm wearing this makeup that doesn't look good. This has nothing to do with her parents. She's 30 years old. I, don't, I think she's also right. not as insane <laughs> as later on when she... Uh... That is, that's also true. Although the ugly thing I was referring to is the peach, which is before Azula's um, oh, loss of her marvelous, let's say. Do, do we want to briefly talk about the Toph thing? Or not? Sure. Yeah, we can talk about it. Go ahead. I mean, I, it's really it's a really short scene, but I feel like the expression they gave her when she's knocking on the door originally, and or like about to go in, knocking on the door, and then like tentatively stepping inside, it's kind of heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, she doesn't... And you see this in some of the comics. Um, spoilers for the, for people that haven't uh, read any of them, but um, read them. <laughs> come on, just, just read the comics. They're really good. Spoil me, Charles. Spoil me. I mean, they're not easy to get in a lot of places, though. I, I guess you buy everything online now, but not even that. What? Yeah, they are. They're in Barnes and Noble. Barnes uh, and Noble is a dying company. Just- does Barnes and Noble exist anymore, Corey? Yes, there's three of them in Rockland. Yeah, there's not that many anywhere else. Well, there's a couple in the city or in New York City, but they um they stopped carrying these. Corey, so. I'm pretty sure like Midtown Comics they has are, them. They are they all are right. on Amazon. If you really want them, go. All right, on all right, Corey. For our viewers that are not in a large metropolitan area, <laughs> those comics may be a little bit hard to obtain. Right. Yes. If you don't want to hear about anything about the comics, you know, skip the next five minutes. But yeah, but there's um. Go ahead, Charles. There is a comic of. Uh, I forget how many years into the future this is, but it's basically where Toph and Aang come to blows about. Um, the rift. Yeah, the like it's it's where Aang is saying like. This is some old sacred site or something, and then Toph's current, or Toph's at the time boyfriend is trying to develop it into something more like, um, I guess modern or factorial. So they go to blows about it, and then there's like a portion of that comic, uh, I forget when it is in it, but where she mentions or she sees her father again. I think it's like her father gets kidnapped by an angry spirit that comes from the land itself. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. one of the hostages it takes is her father. 
And then after uh, her and Aang kind of reconcile and you know uh, send the spirit away, she's facing him, and it's like a really awkward scene because they don't know how to entirely how to respond to each other or react to each mm. other. And I think this like knowing that and then looking at this, this is like clearly an indication that you know, that's been an issue with Soph for a really long time. And it hasn't been something, for all of the tr- emotional strength she shows, isn't something that she's been able to shake off, maybe even throughout her pre-core life. By pre-core, I mean, ob- you know, obviously the comics don't go all the way through the 70 years, but... Yeah. No, no, I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's, I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, I, I think it's definitely a pretty, it's definitely a heartbreaking scene and it's, it's definitely like really, um, like it's really depressing to see the fact that she like is finally willing to like hear out her parents and then, you know, realize, oh my God, it's just not, you know, it's just not going to happen. Um, it's, it is a little interesting that it's like the, um, now, like this, like this trap has like theoretically been there for so long because like the mail was actually inter- intercepted. It's kind of interesting that it's like they're still just like waiting there, ready to to, to intercept her. Um, I mean, maybe they they knew something. I don't know. I, I thought that I did think that was a little funny that it's like um, they were just like waiting around for her to maybe show up. Um, but I think that like yeah, I it is it's really nice to get to see the the the, the beginnings of the sensitive or more sensitive side of Toph and. Like the fact that she is, you know, she is human and she does have feelings. And then to see her walk in and it's like, I'm going to finally talk to my mother. And then no, I'm locked in a metal cage. However, I do want to just give a quick, a quick shout out because, you know, these two guys are, are they get a lot of hate, I think, in the, across the board, because really all they do is pretty terrible stuff. But to, uh, I forget their names, but the two uh, gold loving earthbenders who capture Toph, I just want to give them some love because on some level they are responsible for the creation of metal bending. So to the two of you, I salute you, your um, lust for money and uh, greed helped lead to uh, one of the most important advances in uh, bending in a long time. So I salute the two of them. That somehow leaves a terrible taste in my mouth, and I'm trying to come to an example which says we should not be saluting them anyway, even if they led to good things. What, you don't like saluting child kidnappers? I mean, no, I don't think anyone does. I feel like you're, you're they, giving credence to anyone kidna- else in history that does bad things. They're not kidnapping her, they're bringing her back to her parents. If anything, Hang kidnapped her. I'm kidding, of course. Well, right. I mean, legally, yep, I guess he did. I mean, yeah, but he's also 12, so... That doesn't make it not Sokka. a crime. Sokka's the closest... No, Sokka's the adult. Sokka would be held responsible. You're right. Sokka kidnapped Hop. What's the age of... Uh, of the, uh, what's the age of consent or adultism in, uh... In, uh... In Avatar? Yeah. Um, I'm gonna go with, like, 14. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying what it should be. I'm saying what it is. Those are two different questions. But we know the marrying age is 16. So fine, it's 16. All 
All right. With that, we are going to uh, to wrap things up and uh, move into our final thoughts and our ratings for this episode. But uh, before we do, thank you, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, I mentioned it at the start, but uh, check out all our fabulous content at thoughtsfromoutwoo.com. We will be back next week with the part one of the finale. I doubt we're going to have part two because um, I think that the book two finale are pretty separate between Guru and um, and Crossroads. And also, I don't know if I want to sit around for five hours because I have a lot to say about Guru and I have a lot to say about Crossroads. So we may hold off and do them as, as sort of separate parts. So check back. You'll see uh, our, our book two, uh, end of our book two content and we're guys. We're at the book two finale. We're about to get to book to book three. This is exciting. So uh, with that, we will move into our final thoughts and our readings for this episode. So uh, why don't you kick things off, Corey? Um, I'm gonna stand by what I said at the beginning. I love this episode a lot. Um, again, the the opening fight choreography is one of like again. If you ever were to ask someone. Why is Avatar one of the best animated shows of all time? You show them like scenes like that where it's, it, they, again, they did Avenger-style fight sequences before the Avengers even existed. So it's like one of those things that really brought the episode up for me. Um, I'm, that being said, again, I'm not the biggest fan of the whole arc of the Earth King being an immature child. Again, I'm, I'm okay with other things, but that kind of brings it down to where it, it, it was kind of falling apart. I love the Zuko stuff, as always, especially in book two, where I think Zuko and Iroh's arc in book two is the best it is throughout the series. Um, so with all the elements in place, I think this is a solid 8.5. Yep. All right, Corey. Uh, all right. Thank you, Corey. Uh, Charles, how about you? I feel like I've been convinced over the course of this discussion that this episode is better than I originally thought it was um i i still have some problems um uh, and i think mark you said it best when you talked about pacing like I, I didn't verbalize it but i think that's really what it was just in that stuff with way in the middle seems to wrap up very very neatly very quickly and not entirely in the satisfying way um mm. That being said, obviously, the fight scene in the beginning, we've all praised. Um, I love the stuff with Zuko and Iroh, and I think there's a lot of interesting symbolism that's going on. Uh, Alexis mentioned that you know there's the whole symbolism of them being much more effective and much stronger as a group, and then... As we see, after they've split up, lots of terrible things will start to happen. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that said, uh, I guess no, I'll, I'll give the episode also an eight point five. Um, it's it doesn't it didn't feel like as good as last week's episode to me. It that might sound a little weird to anybody that um listening to these recordings but it just didn't feel as good together or just watching it through so i don't know i, I can't really verbalize why but mm-hmm. i mean keep in mind that length of our discussion is not necessarily indicative of overall quality like you know if you um 
if you want to like just like sometimes we have a shorter discussion because it's like it's good but there's not that much to say um in this case it's like you know we might have more to say but it doesn't necessarily mean it's it's better but still that's fine all right uh alexis how about you um so i did i appreciated the very i appreciated the beginning with the fight scene and with Appa, I appreciated how the episode ended. However, it I do agree with Charles, Charles, with Charles and you, Mark, about the pacing, and because I, I guess this somewhat annoys me because I felt like the episode was overall a cute episode, which, to me, thinking that something's cute, cute is more has has a more terrible context is slightly weird. But because I guess I thought it was just such a cute episode, it wasn't necessarily... Uh, it, I, I didn't necessarily think it was an outstanding episode. I'm going to say it's a 7. Okay. So, on the Charles, I actually think that I, I like this episode more having discussed it. I think that there, there were things about it that I didn't necessarily pick up on that... Um, that I, that I now see is really good. And the more I think about how great that intro fight scene is, like, I, I to me, like, that scene actually just makes up for the pacing problems within the sort of middle part of the episode. I think this episode is, like, is really, really good. Um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm closer to Corey in all this. Um, I think rating-wise, I'll give this an 8.8 .8 out of 10. I think this is a this is a pretty, like, a really good episode. And, and I'll, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. Like, I, I came out of it having watched it, and I watched it earlier today, so it's not like it's been a while. Like, it was good, but there's kind of problems with it. But the more I've discussed it, I've, I've really, I really like it a lot more. So give it kind of, kind of hats off to that. So um, with that, uh, thank you guys for, uh, for tuning in. Thank you to my panel, uh, Corey and Charles, for being here, and Alexis for stepping in as a guest. Um, I thought everything was good, so thank you guys. And we will see you next week. Can I turn this off now, Mark?